Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 247th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Matthew Jarvis. Matthew is the owner of Jarvis Financial, an RIA in Seattle, Washington, that manages $240 million for 170 households. What's unique about Matthew, though, is his ongoing focus on increasing the overall efficiency and profitability of his firm, first by systematizing his business processes to deliver even more value to his clients, and then raising his fees so that he's fairly compensated for the greater, more systematized value that he now delivers. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Matthew's practice has evolved since he was one of the first guests on this podcast, including hiring an additional advisor who's taking over 90% of the firm's client relationships so Matthew can scale the launching of his own advisor coaching program and fintech solution. How by graduating clients that aren't a good fit for his firm and referring them out to younger advisors who are, Matthew has managed to more than double his AUM in the past four years by focusing on onboarding increasingly higher net worth clients. And how Matthew uses a concept he calls extreme accountability as his own impetus to move forward on the important but sometimes unpleasant business tasks by making the status quo even more unpleasant than the task itself. We also talk about why Matthew feels that mastermind groups are so important and the specific steps advisors can take to create and nurture their own group, how Matthew decides which clients to graduate in order to improve the performance of his practice and the thing he does for those clients to make their transition as smooth as possible, and Matthew's thought process behind his own decision to raise his fees and how he actually communicated that increase to clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Matthew shares how his entrepreneurial drive has continued in recent years including the launch of the Perfect RIA Advisor Coaching Program, a fintech offering, and two podcasts, how Matthew got over his own limiting beliefs and, as he calls it, head trash, around hiring another advisor on his team by envisioning what he wanted his practice to look like five years from now and identifying what was staying in the way of getting there, and Matthew's four rules of success, including deliver massive value, be intentional, do what works, and willpower is not enough. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Matthew Jarvis. Welcome, Matthew Jarvis, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael Kitsis, thanks for having me back, buddy. It's a, I think it's been four years since we last talked, and it's a real honor to be back on the show. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you back. Yeah, we were yeah, we were we were joking a little before the show that like I don't know that saying you're part of the two timers club is necessarily the best the best label to adopt, but uh you know, we've we've been doing the podcast now for for more than four years. You know, you were one of the first first guests that joined us for episode number seven. And you know, I just I I you know, there's so many stories out there of advisors that that we continue to tell that we want to tell that I'm excited to tell. But I think it's cool sometimes to get to, you know, come back and visit some of our guests that were on earlier that were that were doing cool things because the the reality is just our, you know, our journeys sometimes shift. I mean, even when we've got a lot of clarity about what we're doing and what we like and what we enjoy, you know, preferences change, style changes, approach changes. Sometimes our journeys go different ways than we expected. I think, in fact, for most human beings, like usually the journey goes somewhat different than than what we'd <laughs> the, expected. The best laid plans, yeah. Yeah. And... 
And you know, I know you've had just a, a lot of growth, a lot of evolution to the firm and what you're doing, and and kind of a whole other platform that you built since you were out on the podcast originally. And so I'm just I'm really excited to have you back to talk about how the how the business has evolved in the in the four years since. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat about that. You know, we talked back, I believe it was 2017. I had just hit a million dollars of revenue, gross revenue for my, my practice. And I had thought my entire career that that was really the gold standard, that once I hit that revenue mark, and I don't know how I came to that number, but once I hit that number, then I would just ride into the sunset. And of course, I was I was just 35 at that time. And then being on your, your show became what I sometimes call a sliding door moment. There's sort of this idea that something happens in your life that seems small at the time, right? We just spoke for an hour and a half. It seemed like it would be no big deal. And then suddenly the trajectory of my life changed dramatically. And, and here we are four years later, and we've got a fintech platform and a popular podcast, and I've got best friends of advisors all over the world. And so a lot of things changed as a result of that episode. I really want to thank you for that opportunity. I'm, I'm thrilled by it. You know, the, I mean, the evolution, even for our platform, for the, for the Kits' platform, you know, I, I, I know only a few people have, have heard the, the story, but you know, when I was looking at getting launched with Kitsis.com got a, almost 15 years ago now, you know, it it was originally going to be a paid newsletter service, and and I modeled it very much after uh, Bob Virus, who still writes a wonderful newsletter, and and had been doing it already at the time for many years, and and I was a reader and follower of his newsletter, and and kind of saw this thing of like he's sharing his expertise and he writes it down and people pay him for it, and I'm like that that sounds really neat because at the time I was like sending articles into journals and trade publications and was getting some stuff out there, but like. You know, did it because it was fun and neat. I wasn't, I wasn't making any money at it, and so I had reached out to to Bob and said, like, "Hey, you know, you've like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some of this writing stuff. I, I really look to look up to you and the writing that you do. You know, I'm thinking about trying to do a newsletter thing the way that you do it, but I'm just wondering, like, you know, what do you think? Should I, you know, like, am I crazy to try this? Because Bob wrote about practice management, and I wanted to write like, you know, giant long nerdy tax papers and retirement research, and and said to him like, well, like, what do you think? Am I, am I, am I crazy to even try this? And and Bob had said, you know, I, I I've seen your writing in the publications. I think it's really good. I think you can do this, and I'll help you get started. And and Bob actually connected me to the developer he was using that he built his membership readership list off of, so that I could do it because this was like 2007. So there there weren't a lot of systems in place yet about how to build membership sites. It's not like today where there's all these turnkey platforms. Like I had no idea how to get started. And so he's like. I'll introduce you to my uh, developer. I'll send a message out to my subscribers saying, "Hey, you should check out this thing that that Michael's doing," and and like and that was the launch, and and that was really probably the only reason at the end of the day I really managed to get the platform going was that he had he had given me a little you know that that little extra like push out of the nest and uh, and a little bit of support in making that transition, and so it's it's always been a part of the philosophy for our platform as well of just what can we do to try to highlight people that are doing cool stuff in the industry and and hopefully try to try to pay forward a little bit what what Bob had done in getting us launched originally in the first place so i'm i'm like just so thrilled to hear that the whole trajectory of the stuff that you're doing has gone in a different direction since you were on the podcast like that's just awesome to me that that's very much a part of what the whole platform is built for 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 what we do at Kitsis well, that's fun to hear the backstory on the on the Kitsis platform, right? And I, I've read sort of your analogy about that iceberg, about people see, right? They see the Kitsis empire, which that's what I'll call that. I know you don't call it that, but the Kitsis empire, right? And think, well, Michael just goes to these events and he says hi to everybody. 
but it is, as you said, years and years in work. And I'll, I'll confess, I am a compulsive kitsis.com reader. I at least scan every single thing that posts on your website. And I'm there, I hate to admit this, almost every single day. That's like my go-to, like a cup of coffee in the morning and go to kitsis.com and see what's been posted for the morning. So I'll, I'll confess that's one of my guilty pleasures. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I, I appreciate that. So help fill us in a little bit more about just the evolution of your business. You paint the picture back for where we were in 2017. And you know, for anyone who's who's listening, you know, you may want to actually go back and hear Matthew's original episode as well. So, you know, this is episode 247. That was episode seven. So kitsis.com slash seven. And you can hear Matthew's original uh, original episode with us. But you know, the 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 picture you paint at the time, as you noted, like you had just hit a million dollars of of revenue, which uh, you know, I think is just it is a milestone in the in the industry. I mean, I think it's probably some function of you know million dollar producer, million dollar roundtable. Like we've kind of built up to a million dollars as a as a threshold number. I, there's probably just something human about it as well. Like I, we still talk to a lot of mass affluent clients who are like the dream is being a millionaire and getting to a million dollars. So just there's something magically round about the number. So often becomes a goal. You were at a million dollars of revenue, but sort of the, the head turning piece at the time was like a million dollars of revenue three-person team, or like only air quotes, only a, a three-person team, 150 clients, 50 plus percent profit margins. And and you were basically saying like, look, I'm good for where my clients are, my revenue is, my income is. And so your whole thing at the time was like, you were not optimizing for how do we get more growth or, or how do we get more revenue necessarily? You were optimizing for days of vacation and we're literally tracking you were up to like 80, 80 days of vacation, like every 80 business days that you were taking off for vacation and we're trying to nudge that number even higher by just systematizing the practice and, and, and time blocking and meeting surges and all these different strategies that you had in place to make that efficient. So, you know, at the time, I, I think you were, you sort of represented like this quintessential high profitability lifestyle practice. Like, here's what you can do when you take a focus on this. So, now paint the picture for us. Like, how how has that evolved? Like, are we still are we still hanging out there, or does it look different now? Yeah. So a lot of my, my practice is largely the same, other than we've grown. So we're now at two hundred and forty million of assets. Uh, I just hired last year another full time advisor. So now we have a team of four, including myself. So I have myself. We have Alex, to whom I'm transitioning ninety percent of my client relationships, and then we still have Nathaniel and Colleen, who have been with me for a long time. And, and I maintain taking my days off. So I've gone from 80 days off, work days off, business days off to 150. I even took a six-month boat trip with my family through the Bahamas. So I maintain this lifestyle practice. But one of the things that happened, Michael, after our episode is I started getting dozens of calls, hundreds of calls, even to this day from advisors saying, Matthew, my goodness, I didn't think this was possible, what you were doing. Can you sort of show me the way? And at first I just said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. I was just flattered that someone would reach out to me. So we talk about surge meetings and raising fees and, and being more efficient and doing one-page financial plans and guardrails. And then that evolved into the Perfect RA podcast, which now gets about 20,000 downloads a month. It evolved into the Perfect RA coaching program and now a fintech offering to try to like help other advisors do what I've done and what my business partner, Micah Shalansky, have done in our own practices. So it's it's quite a trajectory. So Jarvis Financial is still hyper-efficient, highly profitable lifestyle practice. The perfect RAA is really like how we're helping other advisors do what we do. So walk me through a little bit more of the evolution of the, the practice. I mean, I think at the time you were like 100 million under management, about 150 clients. You're now at 240 million of, of management is like 
is client count growing with you? Are you like just moving up to more affluent clients, but the count is similar? Like what's the, how has client count changed when your AUM went from 100 million to 240 million? Well, we certainly had the advantage of a lot of market growth, right? Since 2017, a couple of hiccups in there. We're at about 170 households right now. So we did some graduation. We have moved up. We've increased our fees. So when we talked back in 2017, we were 1% across the board. Now we're 1.5% for any household under $2, under $2 million of assets. So we've not only moved up the food chain, if you will, we've also increased our fees, which we think is relative to the value that we're providing. So... All right, so I, I I want to come back to fee discussion in a moment because <laughs> <Please, please, yeah. laughs> as as you know, that's a hot button issue, and and I want to come back to that. But but I actually want to start with just this this shift in clientele. Of you were at 150 clients, now you're I'll say like air quotes only 170 clients. I mean you you've you've added a little, but only a little relative to you know, the AUM of the business up more than double. Granted, as noted, some of that is is market growth as well, but markets markets have not quite grown that much. They're not up a hundred and forty percent. So, so talk to us a little bit more about how this has worked with with clients. Like, are you are you doing a like you know one on one off kind of thing? Every time a client comes on, you you move one off to try to keep the count similar. Is it more from the other end? Like, some clients are attritioning. By their own natural means, but you're replacing them with with larger clients in turn. Like, how is that shift working? That you you add only twenty clients, but the AUM more than doubles. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have some attrition, right? Just by virtue of focusing on retirees, and I, I always say the worst part of our job is is being friends and, and colleagues to these clients for ten years, twenty years, and then you see them get sick and pass away, right? That's that's my least favorite part of this job. So some of that is people passing away. Some of it is we do graduate clients on a regular basis. Now, I, I would love to do a one on one off, but my head trash, like my limiting beliefs, keep me from doing that. I, I don't like raising fees and I don't like graduating clients because it sort of like crushes my soul. So I have to do it in batches. So once a year or every other year, we'll look and say, all right. Um, who, who's just not a good fit for the service? Who who would be better served by a younger advisor who's focused on smaller accounts? And then we'll graduate ten or twenty clients all at once, so it's just like one really painful, you know, experience and not death by a thousand cuts. And so, I, all right, I just gotta like, just like, take me down that further, and, and I guess just like we've, I love the label head trash, right? Like we've all got our own head trash. So, so I will admit, like my head trash, and maybe this is just my head trash, is. Like axing 20 clients at once and the amount of revenue that costs is freaky. Like only saying, okay, every time I, you know, like every time I get one, I'm allowed to give one up. So I, I never feel like I'm going backward. At least to me feels more comfortable. You've obviously gone in a different direction. So just like talk with me further just on sort of this, like how you get to, um, I'd rather do it in batches where a chunk of them go at a time rather than trying to do like a one-on-one off, you know, or one-in-one-out sort of situation. Yeah, let, let's jump into that. So I'm glad you acknowledged, Michael, that, that we all have head trash. I uh, was working with an advisor. He called me up and says, Matthew, I'd like to talk to you. He has an $800 million shop. The guy's a brilliant advisor. He's been in the industry for decades. And I'm thinking, my goodness, why would this guy with $800 million want to talk to me? And he says, Matthew, I've got this great this great office, this great team, but I'm not ever seeing my grandkids because I'm not, I'm not able to do surge meetings. And I want to learn from you, Matthew, how you do surge meetings. Wow. Okay. Well, let's let's jump into this. And he had his own head trash around that. So no matter where you are, I think in the success spectrum, head trash is still there. Specific to graduating clients, if I do one-on-one off, I'm adding work to my table by bringing on a new client and I'm trying to like clean that back up. I would rather 
move off of it, graduate a, blunk, a chunk of clients, free up that bandwidth, and then I'd have room to take on new clients. So maybe that's semantics, but I run into advisors all the time that I work with. They say, Matthew, when I get to this level of revenue, then I'll hire an assistant. When I get to this level of revenue, then I'll get rid of these clients that aren't profitable. And I'm always telling them, hey, you've got to make the move first. You won't get to that next level until you take this really painful action, graduating clients, raising fees, whatever the case may be. So for you, it's it's much more of the the perspective of, hey, I'm feeling like I'm at capacity. And if I want to grow more, then I have to clear some room on the bus so that I can put some people onto the bus. So rather than trying to do the the continuing like, okay, new onboarding, new offboarding, new onboarding, new offboarding, which is which is a lot of work in of itself. Like I'd rather have the efficiency of, you know, we're gonna offboard 20 at once, because then like we can make the standard letter for all 20. We can have the conversations for all 20. We can do the paperwork for all 20. <laughs> Just like we'll do it in a big batch. Makes it a little more efficient to do it in a batch. And then and then we've cleared some space on the calendar. So now I can I can go get the next few clients and and not feel stressed about the capacity limitations. Yeah, and I, I don't know that I'd have the courage to do it every time, Michael. If I had to do one a month, which is about the pace that we take on new clients, I, I don't know that I'd have the courage each time. I think each time I'd have to decide, all right, am I really going to do that? Am I really going to graduate this person? They've been with me so long. They paid my mortgage in my early days. Am, am I, you know, am I a bad person? Am I a greedy capitalist? Like whatever my head trash is, I don't want to go through that every month. I just want to like, all right, I'm going to do it. And usually I have to do it with extreme accountability. I have to call my buddy, Micah Schlansky and say, Mike, I need to graduate these clients. In fact, he and I did an extreme accountability over hiring an advisor because I'd worked with my mastermind saying, hey, I really need to hire an advisor so I can hand off client relationships. And I didn't want to do it because I had all this head trash about hiring a person and they would create a compliance nightmare and how would I manage them? My buddy, Micah, he says, great, Jarvis, hire an advisor by the end of the year or you have to ride Uber pool until you get that advisor hired, which is good that I did this because of course, Uber pool went away during the coronavirus issues. But that was my thing. Like, And I met with this advisor, Alex, who I hired. And I thought, I really don't want to hire this guy. I mean, he's great, but I just don't want to do it. And I thought, but I'm not going to ride Uber pool. In fact, the deal was so bad that I couldn't even ride with my family. If, my, if I was going with my family to the park, I had to take Uber pool and meet them there. That was our deal. And that was what I needed on my side to get over the head trash of hiring an advisor. And so that's what you're calling this extreme accountability. Like, like basically I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go to my buddy and promise him to do something. Absolutely. I'm going to promise him. I'm going to do something absolutely horrible to myself because then I'm just going to, I'm going to do it for the sole reason that I don't want to have to go back to him and tell him that I'm making good on this horrible bet that I've been placed upon myself. <laughs> yeah. Cause here's kind of like the psychological hack, right? So we, we have where we're at right now and, and it's comfortable, right? Even though we might say, Hey, I should be doing this. I should raise my fees. I should graduate clients. I should do value ads, whatever that is. But the comfort of where we are is so much better than the discomfort of what we imagine to be. Because you say, Oh, if I raise my fees, all of my clients will quit and I'll be a bum and I'll be bankrupt. Okay. We have this imagined fear. So what we need to do is tip the scales and say, Hey, the pain, this extreme accountability of not doing it, right? Me having to ride Uber pool, or I had an advisor who had to send $10,000 to his least favorite political candidate. Or I had another advisor who had to, for every client he did not graduate, he had to fire one of his best clients, right? So we have to make the real pain of not doing it more than the imagined pain of doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you basically, you know, the, the default for most people is, change is scary, status quo is easy. So you're basically trying to attach really negative, painful consequences to the status quo and and make the make the status quo more painful than the change. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I guess I got to do the thing just so I don't have the consequences of the extreme accountability status quo I've just inflicted upon myself. I guess the fact that you inflicted upon yourself is like, it still totally works. I, I mean, just I could imagine a like, yeah, but you're not really going to make yourself ride Uber pool when the time comes, are you? 
Yeah, so the extreme accountability only works, I think, in a mastermind format. So I, I, I've since we had our kids this episode, I've, I do dozens of masterminds now with advisors all over the place, and and we have to. It takes a couple of days to get to the point where you can do extreme accountability. Like you and I couldn't do it over the phone here because we don't have that relationship yet. We haven't been out golfing together or skiing or mountain biking. We haven't sat in the hot tub and talked about what works in our practice and what doesn't, and really get down to this core issue. Like, what is it you need to do to achieve your next goal? And now we have this level of trust and transparency where I can say, all right, Micah Shalansky, I give you my word that if I don't do this, I'll, this other consequence will happen. And you have that relationship and that integrity between you that you know it will happen. Be, because because basically you, you, so it's not even just making the status quo more painful. It's, it's having you someone you have a relationship with to whom you will be either mortally embarrassed to not have done the thing or mortally embarrassed if you don't follow through on the horrible thing that you inflicted upon yourself. And like, it takes all of that bundled together <laughs> to, 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 to get us off the status quo. But, but that's, but that's the point, right? Like status quo is hard. A lot of us get stuck there. Sometimes you really got to give yourself a kick to get unstuck. And so that like, that's literally the point of the whole mechanism. Yeah, and you need that relationship. So uh, when we all go to industry conferences back before when we were going to conferences, a lot of those discussions are pretty superficial. And I don't mean that as disrespect to any conference. I love going to them. What I mean is our discussions in the hallway are like, oh, what are your assets under management? How many clients do you have? We don't ever say, hey, what's the one thing you know you need to do in your practice, but you're afraid to do it? I mean, I don't want to have that discussion with a stranger, right? I mean, that's like financially undressing. And so you need a platform where you can be that vulnerable with somebody. And especially in the independent space, I think in our entire industry, we're very isolated, right? I mean, we have these these numbers. We look at what's your AUM, what's on your ADV, but what you're struggling with in your practice, nobody really knows that. And there's not really a platform for sharing that. So how do you, well, I guess I know how you found it because you 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 made some connections through people who reached out through the podcast, but for the, I mean, just for the average advisor, like how, how do you solve for that? Because I, I, you know, I still continue to hear questions from a lot of advisors of like, okay, so how do I find a mastermind group? I mean, eventually we, we wrote a post on nerds eye view about this, but like I'll I'll admit I don't I don't love the post because it, it basically comes down to if you want to make a mastermind happen, you're pretty much gonna to have to organize it yourself. And we try to give some tips about about how to do that. And I know some advisors that have gone that path and done that, but but it's hard because you know the 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 first star of the solution is like, well, do more work. And, and you know, sometimes you have to do that to get to the good outcomes. But as you said, advising can be actually a pretty isolating business and experience and even just finding a mastermind group or the people to whom you can create that accountability system with can be really difficult for some. It can be. In fact, it's funny you mentioned that article. So I when, before I was on your your podcast, I would send copies of that articles to advisors all over my my geographical area saying, hey, look, Michael Kitsis is talking about these masterminds. I'm trying to put one together. Would you like to be in them? And no one in my local area would want. They all said, no, I don't, I don't want to. So then I posted it on the FPA forum. I said, hey, look, there's this Michael Kitsis thing on masterminds. Who is interested in doing it? And one advisor from Cleveland, Ohio, this guy, Matt Doherty, a great advisor with Ameriprise, he reaches out to me, says, hey, we're on different sides of the country, but I'd love to do this. So we started doing a mastermind, him and I just over the phone, which isn't ideal, but it started. But where I crack the code, and this is what I'd recommend to listeners, is if you belong to XYPN or the FPA or any group where you run into peers, pick some kind of fun activity. Like uh, we're going to Nashville in September to run a Spartan race. And so that becomes our call to action. So I, I text all of the advisors I know that I've met through the FPA and through KitsisU and XYPN and wherever else. And I say, hey, I'm going to go run this Spartan race. If you want to come do this with me, we'll rent an Airbnb for a couple of days. We'll do the Spartan race one day. Each morning, we'll have some great coach or industry expert call in 
do a virtual like one, two hour coaching session. And that will give us something to talk about as we go and ride go-karts or do golfing or run the Spartan race. And that creates this format for getting together. And it, it takes a lot of pressure off of everybody because I'm not saying, hey, I'm going to form this really intense mastermind. I'm saying, let's get together. Let's have some fun. Let's all pitch in for the cost of the Airbnb. Let's pitch in to have Michael Kitzes call us for an hour, pick his brain, and then it gives us something to work on for the day. So that's the format that's worked really well for me. Interesting framing. So, and, and I like uh, the way you note that. Like, it it takes the stakes down. It's not like, hey, I'm organizing a mastermind group, and y'all got to come out. And and then by the time everybody shows up, it's like, wow, I hope I really execute this thing well because I put this together, and basically everybody is now staring at me for several days while I hopefully organize it well, which may or may not be my natural gift on this earth to organize mastermind meetings. But it's but it's a whole different level of stakes to say, hey, look, like. Let's go run this 5K thing. If you're into running, come on out too, right? And obviously you could do it, I guess, over golf or yeah, anything. I've done mountain pick. biking. We've done shooting matches. Yeah. We've done uh, skiing. Right. So just stuff. if you like this thing, come out. We'll do this thing together, which just naturally creates a little time for connecting and chit chat anyways. But hey, we're going to tack a day or two onto it. We'll rent an Airbnb just, Airbnb just so we can kind of all hang out together. We'll create a little bit of an environment where some conversations can happen like, hire an expert to phone in and just do an hour talking to us because it'll probably queue up good conversation for the day. And and let's see where our let's see where our conversation goes. Yeah. And if there's there's five or seven of you, right, you can split an Airbnb. I think ours usually end up costing like two to three thousand dollars a person by the time we divvy up all the adventures. And you could do it for a lot less. So if you were on more of a budget, you could certainly do it for a lot less. But that's that's worked really well for me. I've done dozens of those. We've done some big ones. We did a 50-person one last year, which was a little bit different. The, the key, regardless of the size, is you have to be transparent. You have to be willing to literally write on the wall. We use these giant wall post-it notes. Here was my income, my gross income. Here's my net income, right? The number that no one wants to talk about. Here's the number of clients I have. Here's the top three things that are holding my practice back. You, you have to be really transparent with each other. Otherwise, your conversations become very superficial and you end up talking about economic commentary or what the tax law is going to do or something like that. So. So coming back to the discussion of just like how you've pruned, I guess, pruned the client base to, 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 to stay with, you know, great, great revenue and AUM growth, but not necessarily doing a big, a big growth on the headcount itself. So I, I am just wondering, like, how, how are you deciding which clients to, to offload in, as you noted that, that world where like, oh man, they've been with me for a lot of years. They basically paid my mortgage when I was getting started and who knew if I was going to survive. And I feel like I owe them so much, even though they are not a great client for me now mathematically, right? And you know, uh, we're right down to the head trash space again. So uh, you know, between the, I got to figure out who to actually cut loose when all of these are, or at least usually almost all of them are treasure relationships. You know, Maybe we have a few that are negative pitas, so that's easy to eliminate. But aside from the few that clearly are pain in the butt and we want to get rid of, like, how do you figure out who to get rid of and and just how do you do it and pull the trigger on it? Yeah. At the, at the end of the day, it usually involves making a list of all the clients without their names on it. So I pull their names off so I can be a little more business focused on it. And then I just sort them by revenue, smallest to largest. And we just say, great, this is our least profitable quartile of clients. Now, again, I know a lot of advisors listening in my own head trash is screaming like, wait a second, that's pretty selfish and that's pretty cold hearted business. But at the end of the day, I am running a business and we deliver massive value. And so the that higher group of clientele, we can deliver more value to. Now, I, that letter that I send to clients, which Michael, I'll be glad to send you a copy. You can post it in the show notes. Let me make a note of that so I make sure that happens. It says, hey, listen, we're as we're making changes, as we're trying to become more focused on spending time with our family, as we're trying to see who we can deliver the most value to, it's just really not a good fit for us to work together anymore. But great news, I found two other advisors in the area that I think will do an even better job than we're doing. 
Now, again, my head trash says, well, nobody does as good of a job as I do, right? And that's that's not necessarily objectively true. But a younger advisor who's trying to build a book of business, who's very hungry, they're actually going to give that small client more service than I'm giving them because they don't have as many clients to focus on. So I can say that with integrity. We also then refund our last quarter's fee as a gesture of good faith. Now, you will pick out because you're a real smart guy. You have to, right? If you're charging in advance, you have to do a pro rata refund. We just refund the whole quarter's fee as a gesture of good faith. Also reduces the risk of a complaint. Make that transition as smooth as possible to the new advisor. The client ends up winning. Now, they're not always happy, right? Matthew, I've worked with you for 15 years. What do you mean you're firing me? And so that that conversation can be tricky, but that's that's kind of how we go about it. And I mean, to me, there are a few interesting pieces there, right? L- refunding last quarter's fee, which on the one hand just makes it a little bit more gracious on the exit. If you were billing in advance, technically you do it anyways, but like makes it a little bit more more gracious for the for the client. I, you know, I guess mathematically, like if by definition you're kind of carving off the 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 bottom of the the client base by revenue, like won't actually probably be a huge financial hit because you're not eliminating the highest client fees quarters. You're eliminating the lowest clients fees quarter uh, uh, for the past quarter. And and I'm struck there as well that you said like, look, we've already gone and found two other advisors in the area who are ready to to are ready to service you. So it's 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 a more graceful transition. You know, as you noted, like for all of us, basically no matter where you are in the spectrum, like. Your C client is someone else's A client, and and your A client is someone else's C client. Like you know, take your biggest client. There are still firms out there where they couldn't even get the door with the assets that they have. And you know, for any client you've got that maybe isn't the most profitable and good fit for you, as you noted, somewhere out there, there's an advisor who is newer, has fewer clients, maybe just focuses on a lower end of the the wealth or income spectrum. For whom that would be one of their top clients, and they're going to service the heck out of that person because it's one of their top clients. And, and the client will probably get better service than they were getting from you as your C client, right? Just if we're honest with ourselves about what was going on. So, so I, I am wondering though, like, do you, are you just sort of scanning online to find a few other advisors that you might refer these clients out to you? Do you literally like contact those advisors? Are you interviewing like, you know, 10 advisors to find the two that are going to be in this letter. Like how far down the, the the path do you go of figuring out where you're going to send the clients that aren't going to continue with you? Yeah, I, I do literally interview the advisor both. And so I'll, I'll go to, I'll go to XYPN, I'll go to NAPFA, I'll go to the FPA or the CFP board, they're find a planner. I'll find ones that are in the similar geographic area, though I, I know that's not as much of a restriction anymore, but in my mind it is. And I'll, I'll talk with them and I want to see what's your service model and, and how do you deal with these different things and you, can you handle this level of complexity? And I do that for two reasons. One is when I graduate clients, but the other is I routinely have prospects call in who are below my minimum, especially when they're referrals from really good clients, right? So if my best client refers me to their neighbor and I discover their neighbor's way below our minimum, I don't want to tell them just to pound sand and go away. What I like to tell them is I say, boy, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, uh, what I do is like a, like heart surgery, right? Like I'm, I'm like a cardiologist. And what you need is more like knee surgery, like an orthopedic surgeon, right? So we need to find you a specialist, an advisor who specializes in what you need. And great news, I know an advisor, his name's Dave, he's down the road. I'd be glad to make an introduction. Dave specializes in the type of service that you need. Now, the advantage to me of this, Michael, is twofold. One, I can tell this person, hey, I'm not a good fit without as much head trash for me. But the other is I can go back to my best client who referred him and I can say, boy, thank you so much for the referral. Always glad to talk to your family and friends. We weren't a good fit for Dave, but we got him introduced to an advisor who I think is going to do a great job for him. Is that okay with you? And they're always ecstatic, especially when we use the doctor analogy. They're used to seeing specialists. As soon as I say, hey, I'm this kind of a specialist, 
uh, everybody's fine with that. It really does change the mental frame, right? Just, I think for a lot of us to say, you know, to, to imagine like a client referred someone to us and like, I'm an advisor and I say, well, I'm not a fit. I'm sending you to another advisor, right? It just sort of raised the natural question. Well, why not a fit? Well, because you didn't have enough money. Well, the person who referred me had enough money. Well, that's going to be an awkward conversation the next time they hang out, right? And we get we get stuck very quickly down that down that pathway. But I love the analogy, right? If you think about this in medical context, if you went to a cardiologist who said, you know, your pain is really your knee, you really don't need to talk to me, you should be talking to an orthopedist, so I'm going to refer you to an orthopedist I know, like, no one faults the cardiologist for not seeing you about your knee. In fact, you're kind of thankful that they didn't see you about their knee because their specialty is hearts, right? Just when we when we think about ourselves in that specialist realm or we just we position ourselves in that specialist realm, turning down referrals that aren't a fit isn't, isn't necessarily the problem or the level of awkwardness anymore. It's just, hey, here's what I'm good at, but I want to let you know, like I totally found the specialist that's actually better for that person you referred and and they're in a great place now with with I guess just the asterisk that you as the advisor have to take the time to find that advisor vet that advisor or or just in general build your own network of other advisors you may refer to for various problems that's right i i suppose you could certainly say hey i'm not a good fit good, good go in peace but that that's tough right and so I, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my book about how to actually get referrals from clients so our our new business still comes one third from client referrals one third from center of influence referrals and then one third from my personal networking and where most advisors go wrong with referrals is they tell their clients and say hey if you know anybody else that has a million dollars or whatever their minimum is send them my way two problems here one, the client doesn't know how much money their friend has. Problem number two, they don't want their friend to know how much money they have. So instead, I tell clients, listen, one of the benefits of working with our firm is any friends and family you have that have any kind of money question of any nature, have them give us a call and we'll get them pointed in the right direction. No cost, no obligation. Because they're a friend of yours, we're glad to do that. Which ends up meaning about half the people my clients refer to me have totally unrelated issues. They want to refinance their credit card debt or get a student loan or something. I give them some great advice. I introduce them to somebody. The other half are a perfect fit and they become amazing clients. So now talk to us about the the second piece of this change in, in sort of the, the, the practice metrics. You know, number one was have added a lot of AUM with a, only a limited increase in the in the client count because you've got this this system for for graduating some of the clients and moving them on to create space for new ones that are a better fit with with uh, more revenue per client. You also said you you increased your fees. I think you'd said you were at one and a half percent for anyone under under two million. And I believe when you were on with us originally, you were at one percent. Yes, yeah, we were at one percent across the board, and we did a series of fee increases. Till right now, we're in the middle of anybody under two million is at one and a half percent. So, so I guess I, I sort of have two two pretty simple questions then. Uh, why? And how? <laughs> <laughs> the why. The why is a tough one. And, and for anybody listening, right, whatever why I give, it might resonate or they might say, hey, that's, that's really silly. So one why is we deliver a lot of value to clients. We think that the value we deliver is above average. Now, how do you measure that? It's a bit anecdotal, I suppose. And also why is it's a free market, right? And, and when you had my good friend, Micah Shlansky on, right, he talked about hotels. He said, hey, you know, Motel 6 does not charge the same as a Ritz-Carlton even though from a utilitarian standpoint, they're offering the same service, right? I have somewhere to sleep for the night. So again, we feel like our fee, our value is above average. And so we want to charge an above average fee, but it's a voluntary transaction. So we go to clients and we say, hey, we've, we're raising our fee because we think it reflects our value. If you don't think so, we'd be glad to introduce you to some advisors who charge a lower fee. 
And when we do that, you know, 45 out of 50 clients that we did it to, they all said yes. And a couple said, you know what? No, I don't want to. Perfect. Great. We'll introduce you to another advisor. So I don't know if that answers the why question. It's, I have a lot of head trash around fees in general. I always have to have extreme accountability to do increase. Uh, but I think I'm, I keep getting better at what I do. I keep delivering more value to my clients. My fee should respect, reflect that. And so did you just literally go straight from 1% to 1.5%? Was this like an incremental, like you went to 1.1 and then 1.2, 1.3 and kind of got there gradually because you either were building up to it or didn't want to hit clients all at once? Or was it just like one one year you decided, okay, this is the year we're moving our base fee from one to one and a half and, and everybody's everybody is either coming along with us or they're going to someone else? We did it in waves, but not as the fee, but to whom it applied. So that first we did it for clients. The very first time we did it was clients under $300,000. So really small legacy clients. And then we did clients under 500 and then clients under a million. And then right now we're doing it clients under 2 million. And at some point I'll get the courage to just say, hey, it's one and a half across the board. But uh, I, I only have so much like mental ability, like so much courage at a time. Interesting. So so in essence, it, it was kind of like you you introduced a fee structure that said it's one and a half percent on the first 300 grand and told all the clients under that. And then you moved it to 500 and told the clients under that. And then you moved it to a million and told the clients under that. So it was sort of a, I'm imagining like it just the first, the first threshold and the break point kept, kept just creeping higher over time. And that naturally captured a wider range of clients as you moved up that threshold. Correct. Correct. And, and we have to remember, right, we, we kind of as an industry focus around this 1% number, I think just because it's an easy number to do the math on, right? It wasn't the 11th commandment, like it wasn't on the backside of the tablets, right? That thou shalt charge 1%. And so if we can charge any fee, like, I suppose, as long as you're not doing like two and 20, like a hedge fund, you're, you know, your fees in a range. What I see a lot with advisors, I did a whole chapter on this with my book is they'll have really low fees. They'll be like, oh, these clients, I'm charging a quarter of 1% or some super below average. And so this idea of raising fees isn't specific to one to one and a half. It's just saying, hey, if your value is increasing over time, your fee should should reflect that, in my opinion. Now, some some people will and have disagreed with that, but that's kind of my approach to it. Well, it's an interesting framing. If your value is increasing over time, so should your so should your fee schedules. Because I think it sort of makes a a subtle but important point. Like we can we can acknowledge there's a difference between, you know, I'm I'm a new advisor launching my firm from scratch and I wanna and I want to launch my fees at one at one and a half percent versus saying, no, I'm an experienced advisor. I've been doing this 10, 15, 20 years. We've really honed in our value proposition. We may not have charged one and a half percent in the past, but you know, darn it, we are really good at what we do now. And I think now this is a fair reflection of 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 the right fee for the depth and quality and capabilities and systems that we've got. And I've, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of advisors to raise their fees, some from zero, some from a small number, whatever the, the number is. And we always start by making sure the value they're delivering in their practice is systematized. So we do a quarterly value add. We have our one-page financial plans. We have our retirement income guardrails. So we help advisors get really proactive with the value that they're delivering, really just by copying what we do and then saying, great, Mr. and Mrs. Client, you can see all of this value that we're delivering that we didn't deliver before. We're adjusting our fee now to reflect that value. And what is quarterly value adds? Yeah. So early on in my career, uh, when we were a state licensed RAA, the, our state of Washington, Washington state, not the capital, they said, hey, you have to send a client a specific invoice for your fee. It can't just be the line item on the custodial statement. That was their ruling at the time that, that may or may not be the case still. And so I thought, shoot, if I have to send clients a bill every calendar quarter showing them exactly how much fees we're taking out, I want to demonstrate value 
with that same letter. So the letter would say like, here's your fee. And by the way, here's something valuable we did for you this calendar quarter. So it was kind of a combination of necessity and my head trash. And we're no longer required to do that because we've been SEC registered for a lot of years, but we had this habit. So every calendar quarter, once the quarter ends, we send some kind of what we call a value add. So for example, this quarter, we just sent out Mr. and Mrs. Client, here's a list of your accounts. And in dollars and cents, not percentages, here's how much your beneficiaries are going to receive. So Michael, you and I can do percentages all day long. We can say, hey, 33% of this number is X. Clients can't do that. So when it says, hey, Dave's going to get 33% of a million dollars, it might as well say Dave's going to get marshmallows. Like that's what it means to them. And I don't, I don't mean that with disrespect. It's just not how their brain works. But if instead it says, hey, your son is going to get $330,000 in a lump sum when you die, are you okay with that? Now the client can resonate. They can say either, yeah, Dave's responsible, no problem. Or they're going to say, hey, Dave's an idiot. And if he gets 330000 he's going to blow it all in a minute. Now we can have a discussion on beneficiaries that's gone from abstract to real money, as an example. Okay. And, and so just literally, like, every single client's going to get a little letter that just says, you know, here's, hey, just a quick reminder, like, here's your assets, here's the beneficiaries, here's where it's going, here's who's going to get what. That's right. That's right. And and so we used to do it in my office with Excel. We would just get down. We use Fidelity as our custodian. We would download all this data. We would massage it in Excel. And we would generate mail merge essentially out of Excel. But then working with Mike and Shlansky and the Perfect RA, we've built it into a web platform so that people, because advisors would say, Matthew, I love the value add idea. How do I do it? And I would say, great, here's my spreadsheet. Knock yourself out. And they couldn't figure it out because as you know, Excel can be really cumbersome. So now we've built it into just a web-based platform so that you can really easily push a button and generate this value add. Two real advantages. Because at the end of the day, like you still basically have to send, like create 170 personalized documents. So just you, you, you want some way to, as you know, like mail merge in, like here's the client's accounts, here's the percentages, here's the dollar amounts, here's what it adds up to with the appropriate names. And if I don't want to manually type 170 letters, like I need, I need some way to systematize the, the synthesis of these things. Yeah, I mean, 170 letters, that's 170 households. Let's say there's an average of five accounts per household, right? Husband, wife, an IRA, each a Roth, each in a joint account. So what are we talking about? Almost a thousand accounts for an average average practice. So it's work, right? You've got to really be committed. This is why we charge an above average fee. Two, two great things happen from this value add. One, of course, I'm demonstrating value to the client proactively. The other is if I have a client pass away tomorrow, I know that I reviewed their beneficiaries just this quarter because we did everyone's. What tends to happen is advisors forget about clients. And I don't mean that with any disrespect, just life happens. Client calls in and says, hey, I've got dementia. I'm going to go to a nursing home. Oh, no. When, when did we actually review long-term care last? For my office, I can look and I can say, oh, that was in the Q3 of 2020. We did long-term care reviews for everybody. We know that you're at least up to date as of then. Same with tax planning, Roth conversions, estate planning, risk management, all of the areas of financial planning. So how do you explain a what amounts to a 50% fee increase, right? Just if you're going from, from one to one and a half, like I, just how does that get communicated and explained? So I, I do it in a, in a letter and I'll be glad to send you that letter too. So you can, you can post it. I don't want to do it in person. I just don't have the fortitude to have that discussion 50 times. So we send a letter to clients. We say, Hey, you know, we haven't raised our fee in this many years. And to reflect the value that we keep providing, here's our new fee. And that will be effective as of this date. The way that our fee agreements have always been signed, set up, the clients have to sign, they have to sign a new fee agreement to make that happen. Some advisors do like a negative consent. I'm not a huge fan of that, but they have to sign a new fee agreement. So it's like, here's the fee agreement or now it's electronic and we just need to send it back by this date. And then if we don't get it by that date, we call them and say, hey, listen, we really need it by this date or we're going to have to resign from your accounts because we can't continue to be 
your advisor. And most clients just sign it and send it back. Some want to call and negotiate a little bit. Some really object. And I just have to be ready to deal with those. And by I, I mean really me. I can't make my team do that, right? If a client calls and says, my goodness, my fee was $10,000 a year. Now it's $15,000 a year. I think that's ridiculous. That's a call I have to take, right, as as the owner. So I am struck by just the point of... Yeah, these conversations suck when you're doing it it like in person one at a time, one after the other. You know, like you're put in a position where clients may may beat you up about it. So like so you just didn't do that. Like you just sent them a sent them a letter and and you know, the you know, the the ones that are gonna do a little bit of righteous indignation are still going to call. So you may not get out of those a handful of tough conversations, but for all the rest, like you're just not putting yourself in the position where they may push back on it, and then you have to deal with the pushback. Because if they're going to be grumpy for a moment, like by the time they get around to saying, "Oh yeah, I got to call Matthew about the fee increase," like they've the indignation moment has already passed, and they are just ready to sign it and move on. Well, and it's just the extent of like my my courage for just to be like really transparent with you, Michael. Like I, I just I have my own head trash. I only have so much fortitude. Like this is my hack. Now again, my good buddy Micah Shalansky, he does them all in person. He sits down, Mister and Mrs. Client. Are we delivering a lot of value to you? Yes, Michael. You, Micah, you deliver lots of value. Perfect. Well, our fee is now this. Is that okay with you? Like he can do that. I, I, I just I couldn't do that. I would I would not show up to the office if I, if I knew that was my day. I, I probably just would physically not show up to the office. I just don't have that fortitude. So what happened when you sent this out? I, I just like, did you get clients who said no? How many of them you know called all upset? How many were were fine? I don't, I don't know if you tracked it, but just like how how did this go in practice? I think you know for. For most advisors, well, any fee increase is scary. A number bigger than 1% is scary. The combination of the two is like super scary. The magnitude of the fee increase would be probably even scarier for a lot. So just, you know, as we've noted, no no shortage of head trash about how this is going to be like a, a self-destructive business imploding decision. You're still here with us, so clearly it, it wasn't. But like, how did this play out? Yeah, well, I'll take my one of my more recent ones where clients that had between a half million and a million of assets, they were going from a million, or excuse me, from one percent to one and a half percent, and it was about fifty clients. The first thing that I did was, and this comes from Tim Ferriss, the legendary author of the Four Hour Workweek. He has a TED Talk about defining your fears called fear setting. So the first thing I did was write out all of the things that I thought could go wrong that these clients would all fire me. All 50 of them would fire me. And not only that, they would call all my other clients and get them to fire me. And not only that, they would all file complaints with the SEC and I would be barred from the industry. And not only that, my wife would leave me, my friends would disown me. Like, this is all the head trash that we go through in our minds, right? Get it all out there. If we're going to get hung up on this, let's just get it all out there. Let's get it all out there. Because sometimes we just say like, you know, toughen up and do it. So I write it all down and then I go back and look and I say, all right, how many of these things could really happen? Like, what's the probability of this? All right, a lot of I really don't think my wife's going to leave me over a fee increase. All right, I'm going to draw a line through that one, but it, it is possible that all 50 of those clients fire me as a result of that. Okay, perfect. What would happen in my life if all 50 of those clients fired me? Well, that would be an impact on my revenue. I would probably have to cut back on my travel, like whatever that was. I really mapped that out so that I could get clear in my mind. Here's the actual risk I'm taking, not just this fear, this monster under the bed. So we sort of look under the bed. What's the monster? Then we. Then I got some extreme accountability. I told my buddy, Micah Schlansky, hey, I want to raise my fees. He says, perfect. If you don't do it by the end of the year, you will send a letter to your top 10 clients telling them that I'm a better advisor than you are and that you recommend that they move their accounts over to him. Well, okay. So I write these letters. He's got them. 
it was a, that was a very, um, very creative, extreme accountability solution for Micah. Like, uh, hey, just to be clear, if this doesn't work out for you, let's make sure it at least works out for me. That's a, that's a good version of extreme accountability. I will, in Micah's defense, we have since changed our rules in extreme accountability. You don't want it to benefit the person keeping you accountable, right? Because this creates a conflict of interest. You also don't want to involve anybody you have a personal relationship with. So never do extreme accountability with your spouse or your partner or your employees because it, it creates a conflict of interest. So that's why we did the Uber pool thing or donate money to your least favorite political candidate. Anyway, so I update my ADV at the, basically the last, like in September, the September before the deadline, I send the letter out to clients. So of the 50, 40 sent it back right away, five had some real pushback. And they said, hey, you know, can we keep the low fee? Can we go to a different model? Can we go whatever we want to do? Those five all ended up and ended up signing the form. The remaining five, three, we just never heard back from. And so we, res- like we called them multiple times. They just never responded. So we resigned from the accounts because that's what we said we would do. And then two just said, hey, listen, we're not going to do it anymore. We, we decided we're going to manage it on our own, or we don't think the value's there. We're going to find somebody else. Perfect. No problem. So of all of my fear that every single person would quit, two, two did. Well, I guess five, because three didn't respond. But still, at the end of the day, so you know, of the block of 50, right? So t- 10% of them didn't continue with you. And the other 90% increased fees by 50% which if I you know, do my napkin math, worked, worked out quite well. Yeah. The other thing that helps when doing the fee, the, the fee increase is to really map out and say, how many of these clients, I said 50, how many of them would have to say no before we break even on the ones who say yes, right? So if, especially with a 50% increase, you can do some quick math there and say, you know, let's, if a third of them say no and quit, we're still going to break even on this fee increase. In which case we're coming out ahead, like our revenue is flat, but we're coming out ahead because now we have one third less clients to service means we can have more time to deliver value to existing clients, more bandwidth for bringing on new clients. And, and, uh, and I guess getting back to the earlier discussion of how do you, you know, how do you clear space to you know, have larger clients over time? Part of it just becomes, you right, you get attrition due to maybe relocation, you get attrition due to change in life circumstances, you get attrition due to death perhaps. And you know, you get a few that attrition because they don't see your value enough to pay you the higher fee. So they don't, and you move on to the next. Yeah. And whether it's with these clients that we're raising the fee on or prospects, I'm always really quick to say, Hey, we charge a premium fee because we deliver premium value. Like we never shy away from that fee. And I, I even volunteer, I say, you know what? Vanguard has this really great dial a CFP program for 30 bips. You can get a CFP on the phone anytime you want. Now there's a lot of things they don't do that I do. And I think that's why we are worth the premium fee, but you, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, you need to decide that for yourself. In fact, I recommend that you go home and sleep on this. In fact, even give Vanguard a call. Compare our one-page financial plan. I don't mean to pick on Vanguard because I I really do think they do great work and I refer people to them all the time. Compare our one-page financial plan to what they recommend and then really go with the option that you think is worth the fee. And it puts me in a real position of authority, right? Just like the, the heart surgeon example, right? The heart surgeon doesn't say like, hey, would you pretty please use me for your heart surgery? They just say like, here's my credentials. Here's what we're gonna do. It makes sense or it doesn't. Let me know. So I get it for existing clients. Because they're existing clients and, and you know, you get to have either, well, directly like Micah or indirectly as you do, did through the, through the letter, like, look, here's all the value that we provide to you that we've provided over time. You see our value, you've experienced our value. If you really don't think we're valuable, like totally cool, we'll part ways. But if you do, here's our new fee. And, and as noted, like 90% came along with you on that, but they've seen your value. So talk to me about how this conversation works when you're talking about one and a half percent fees for prospects, for strangers, for people who haven't actually seen that value yet. 
Yeah. I, I Oddly enough, I actually prefer that one, that discussion, because there's not like, a, I'm not going to lose that relationship, right? It's a relationship I haven't yet gotten. So in my mind, that's actually an easier discussion to have. But we always explain to prospects, and this is on our, our company website, gyrosfinancial.com. Advisors can see this kind of written out there. We say, hey, we want to help you make an educated and informed decision about our firm. Now, Mike, uh, Michael, that's both a nice marketing line, but it's also the truth. Like, I don't want someone to try to work with me who has expectations that don't align with what I do. So we say, hey, we want you to make an educated and informed decision about our firm. We have a process for helping you do that. And great news, you can use this process to evaluate any other firms that you're considering. But now I've set the ground rules for how we're going to evaluate other firms. Performance is not on my list, right? So I don't have to worry about getting a performance contest. Then I explain how we're going to do a one-page financial plan, how they're going to take that one-page financial plan home and sleep on it. They're going to use that. And then they'll have three choices. So I'll say, here's your one-page financial plan. I'm really accelerating this explanation. Here's your one-page financial plan. You have three options. Option number one, you can implement it on your own. We've given you the bullet points. You could go and do it on your own. Option number two, you could find another firm. Now, if you talk to another firm, you might let them produce their list first and compare. Like, Don't give them the keys to the kingdom. Let them work for it. Option number three is you work with us. I'll confess that's my favorite option, but only if it makes sense for you. And it's, again, a decision you have to make on your time. This isn't a timeshare presentation. We're not going to lock the doors. And I kind of smile and joke about that. You, you, you talked about this. I mentioned this a few times. So your, your, your financial planning framework and, a, and approach around one-page financial plans. I know you, you talk about this in your, in your book as well. You know, I, I think there's been more buzz in general lately around one-page financial plans. So, you know, Carl Richards did his whole book around oh, yeah, this theme. Of course. You guys just did a podcast together on that or, or when we were recording this, it was recent. So talk to us a little bit about just one-page financial plan and what that means. Because I, I think in general – a lot of people are still struggling with concept of one page financial plan. I think it's an interesting an even more interesting juxtaposition for for what you do because we're talking about I, you know I charge a premium fee for a one page financial plan. That's right. You get one page of bullet points and I'm going to charge 50% more than than what most people charge. So so talk us through that right there. <laughs> Well, so so here's the, here's the other the tool I use in this, right? So we we have our our prospect process again. It's detailed on our website. So I won't I won't go into it. I walk through the bullet points, and and so we say, hey, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to deal with taxes. Here's how we're going to deal with your investments, risk management, and so forth. By the way, Mister Mrs. Prospect, this is the low hanging fruit. This is just the stuff we saw on our first pass through. Imagine what we'll do if we work together on a regular basis, and their kind of their eyes get big. And I say, listen, great news, our fee, it is a premium fee, but we only charge it on a quarterly basis. So once a calendar quarter, we deduct our fee. It's a line item on your statement. You'll see Jarvis Financial Advisory Fee on your Fidelity statement. And you'll look at that number and I'll look at that number. And if we look at the number and we say, hey, the value provided is worth some multiple of the fee, then great news, we go another calendar quarter. If by chance you look at that and you say, I don't know that it was worth it. This is a lot of money. Perfect. We need to have a real heart-to-heart -heart discussion, see if we can fix that, or we need to part ways as friends. And if we decide to part ways as friends, I'll refund my last fee and I'll do everything I can to make the transfer as simple as possible. So let's go ahead and get started. We'll do all this work for you. Even if we only work together one calendar quarter, you've still gotten all of this work that I've outlined on the one-page financial plan. And I suppose in theory, you could leave after a quarter with all this great work. But let me warn you, nobody actually does that, but you do have that option. And nine prospects out of 10 say, oh, well, why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I pay a premium fee for one quarter to get this taken care of? And then we deliver so much value that they just end up staying for life. And the and the deliver so much value is because you've got this focus around client meetings, the quarterly value adds, the just let's let's make sure we're always showing up every quarter to do something that that creates perceived value for clients. And and I guess it 
it actually becomes a form of your own extreme accountability mechanism. Like you know, when you when you've told the client, "Hey, look at that, look at that fee line item every single quarter." Uh, you've now created a thing in your own head of like, oh man, I told them to look at the fee line every single quarter. I better make sure we send out something valuable this quarter before they get that fee line item. And and that keeps you accountable to make sure you keep putting value out. It does. And I've had a lot of advisors make that same comment, even suggesting that it puts too much emphasis on the fee. But but here's kind of the, the newsflash for everybody. Clients are already looking at that fee. So I'm kind of giving them permission to do what they could already do, right? You could leave me at any time. Clients already have that ability to do that, right? You can take this one page financial plan home and decide what to do. They already have like that's their right. All right. I can't I can't coerce them into it. So I'm sort of like giving them permission to do what they already had permission to do. Uh, and so I'm really not giving up anything. I'm just saying, hey, here's what you can do. It's what you can already do. I'm just going to encourage you to be intentional about it. Like l- look at that fee and decide every quarter. Whereas otherwise they're going to look at that fee and they're not going to have a framework on to, to evaluate that. They're going to say, wow, Matthew charged me $10,000 this quarter. What did he do? Oh, Matthew did say that every time we see that fee that we should think about the value. Yeah, he has been really valuable for us. All right, let's keep paying him. And and so I guess that still feeds back into what I think is the, well, I was going to say the latent fear for for most of us, although I for some, it's probably not even latent. It's it's more expressed and visceral of of like, oh my god, like what like what are you doing every quarter to make sure that that math always comes out well, right? I think a lot of us have some level of anxiety of like, am I am I showing up with enough stuff every quarter forever to make sure that that they're okay with that fee and they don't fire me? And that's even at all for most of us, that's at an average fee, not at a one and a half percent fee. Yeah, I think it's really at any fee, even even if you're charging a quarter bit, I think the head trash is the same. Maybe it's a little bit bigger at a, at a higher fee, but advisors I talk to at a quarter of a percent, they still have this, am I delivering enough value to justify my fee? Which I suppose makes an interesting point. Like if you're gonna be if you're gonna be caught up in that amount of head trash anyways and be so focused on delivering more value for your fee anyways, you may as well charge a bigger number because you're still gonna be sized you're gonna be just as psyched out about yourself. So you may as well do all that work for a bigger number that that at least fully recognizes the value you're actually providing. Yeah. And some things, and, and advisors, you and I that have been doing this a long time, know some things are really easy to quantify. We can say, hey, look, we noticed that you're, you should be doing QCDs, right? Qualified charitable distributions. And over the next 20 years, that's going to save you whatever the number is. Like we can, Especially tax strategies, we can really quantify that. Other things like, hey, you need to update your estate documents and we're going to help you with that. We can't really quantify that very well. So that just kind of goes into this more nebulous, like, hey, we're helping you achieve your financial goals. And either it makes sense to you at this dollar amount, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then you know, go, in, go in peace and find someone who can do it for you at a lower cost. I do, when, when prospects get a little edgier on that, when they push back, and I've been doing this long enough, I can push back on them. I'll say, hey, great. If you can find someone who does more value than we do at a lower fee, you should absolutely hire them. Please also give me their name because I would love to hire them myself. I just haven't found them. And especially when we do the one-page financial plan. Now, some of the listeners are going to say, well, Matthew, that's, that's really arrogant. And, and I guess in a way it is, But in my geographical area, in my niche, with the type of clients I work with, I don't think anybody does a better job than I do. Now, maybe somebody will call me and they do, in fact, do a better job than I do. And I'll learn from them and I'll adapt whatever they're doing better. And then I'll be on on par with them. So some of this is kind of like a head game. Like, hey, if I'm going to tell clients they should pay me, I better be the best person. I better not be tricking them into thinking I'm good enough. So, so now talk to us about how just the the business and the delivery of all of this has has evolved for you. You know, you were you were the lead advisor on this when you were on the podcast with us originally. You had said like you're 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 hiring an advisor now and the goal is to to transition 90% of the client relationships to them. So that's a that's a pretty big massive shift in just your life, your role, the nature of the business, where you where you're focused. So 
So talk to us a little bit about what's leading to that change. Because I think for for the average advisors listening, like 240 million under management at a 1% AUM fee with three or four staff members while taking 100 plus days off already sounds pretty good. <laughs> so like, where's the, I need to hire an advisor and transition a lot of client relationships coming from? Like just where where is your head that you're seeing that as the, as the next step from here? Yeah, it was prompted by two things, both of which came up during masterminds and working with other advisors. One is that the financial planning process started to get a little mundane for me. So when you, when you get really good at something, it starts to get a little bit mundane. And so I was doing, of course, surge meetings. So I'm doing, what am I doing? 25, 30 meetings a week when I'm in surge. And it was kind of the similar thing again and again and again. So there was a bit of a mundaneness that I wanted to get out from underneath. The other is after I was on your podcast, so many advisors were reaching out to me and I was having so much fun transforming their practice, right? Having this discussion on raising fees and delivering value and saying, here's how I did it. You can do the same. Like, look at me. I'm, I'm a normal guy. I, I'm the same as you. You can also do this. That was incredibly rewarding. Uh, and then working with my good friend, Micah Shalansky and all that, it really was a lot of fun. So one was I was getting kind of bored with client meetings. The other was that I wanted to spend more time working with advisors without eating into my free time. And so we used a recruiter. We hired Alex Lynch, an advisor. He's a CFA. He's got 10 years of experience. And we started this process of transitioning client relations. So I've transitioned about 50% of our client relations. In this fall surge, I'll transition the remaining 40%, and I'll be left with about a dozen relationships that I that I lead. And so far, it's gone incredibly smooth. We've had almost no pushback, but we've approached it very intentionally using the systems that I learned from other advisors. Like I always want to learn from people who have done it. I don't want to know the theory on transitioning clients. I want to know, like, how did you actually do it? Like when you sat down with a client, what did you tell them when you handed them off to somebody else? And so speaking of which, what did you tell them when you told them that you were handing them off to someone else? Like, Because I, I know you've you've been in the practice for a long time. So a lot of these really are clients that are five-year relationships, 10-year relationships, even 15-year relationships. So how, how did you have that conversation uh, with the clients that you were looking to transition? Yeah, it's really been something we've been working on for a year. Even when we started interviewing advisors, we started telling our clients in person in our newsletter, great news, we're adding a member to our team, another advisor, so we can always be delivering massive value. Especially as my own kids are growing up, I want to make sure I have plenty of time with them. And I want to make sure that when we're traveling, there's always somebody here to help you. So we're already positioning it to clients, hey, why is this in their best interest? And then for our first round of meetings, Alex and I did them together. And I told the clients ahead of time, I said, hey, listen, our new advisor, Alex, is going to sit in on this meeting so that when you have a question and I'm not available, Alex will be able to answer that. Is that okay with you? And they all said, great. And then this, this current surge meeting that we're coming up to, I'm telling clients, hey, listen, I really need a favor from you. Will you meet with Alex one-on-one -on -one without me there and see how he does on his own and let me know how he does? And if he misses anything, we'll take care of that, you and I offline. But this will really let me know how he does in a meeting without me there. And clients love to help. They they're just really excited for that. Let's say so you're like you're 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 basically engaging the clients and they're like, hey, will you help me with the Alex development process? You know, he he's gonna meet with you on his own. Let me know how he does. And so hopefully at least most clients are into it. They're like, all right, yeah, you know, I'm I'm checking up on you, Matthew. Like I'll 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 see how Alex does. I'll let you know. I'll let you but now they're taking the meeting with Alex because they because they want to see how he does because you set it up that way. That's right. And then they get done with the meeting and I follow up and I say, how did Alex do? And they say, oh, Alex did a great job. He's really a smart guy. Uh-huh. And he did everything that you did. Perfect. Great. Well, it sounds like he did such a good job. He'll probably just take most of the meetings going forward. Oh, well, okay. That'd be great. Because you, I, 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 I kind like of set you, him you, up for that, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say like you 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 sort of set them up for it there that that you you told them like hey are you um you are you ready to meet with them and and give me feedback and then they meet with them and it goes well and they say hey it went really well it's like so cool so you're happy just to meet with them on an ongoing basis because you just said it was awesome. You did right? say it was awesome. Now I, I have to give credit where credit is due. My my good friend Matthew Doherty, who's been in my mastermind for years, uh, like I said, he's a Ameriprise guy over in Cleveland. I learned this from him. So I was terrified. I said, I said to my mastermind, Hey, I can't, I can't transition clients. It will never work. And he says, listen, here's exactly what I did in my practice. And it worked phenomenally well. And if it worked for me, it can work for you. And I think Michael, again, this is the power of masterminds to say, let me get really transparent. Here's what I'm afraid of in my practice. Has anyone else done this? And how did you conquer that fear? And, and that's how I was able to figure that out. So have, have you had any clients that push back? Is this just literally sailing through with all of them? We had a couple pushback. We had one client who kind of felt blindsided by having Alex there. Like we hadn't set the expectations, right? We kind of rushed the process. And they said, I don't know who this guy is. I don't want him in a meeting. Uh, but after I talked to him and they met Alex, they were fine. And then I had one of my top clients, which I was already going to keep, say, hey, Matthew, we really want to keep working with you. This is important to us. And I thought, perfect. You're already on the list of people who get to keep working with me. So, so far, it hasn't been a problem at all. So just, just sort of reiterating the whole, like the fears we have are probably more our head our, our own head trash than, than the clients or, or like our own head trash than, than, than real client problems that are likely to crop up from this. Yeah. I mean, let's just give the client the opportunity to, to validate our fear, right? So the clients could have all said, Matthew, you know what? I don't want to meet with Alex. I only want to meet with you. Okay. Well now we know otherwise. And like, this is like a Seneca or a Marcus Aurelius, like our, our fear of what's going to happen like that, that pain of fearing it is actually worse than the pain itself. And I've noticed you said like you are looking to transition 90% of relationships, which to me is just noticeably not 100%. So like why, why, the, why the last 10%, like why the 90-10 split? Yeah, the last 10%, two reasons. One, when I'm talking to Alex and I'm, and I'm managing him and I'm mentoring him, I want to make sure I'm doing that from a place of authenticity. I'm not just saying, hey, Alex, here's what I think we should do with clients. I can say, hey, Alex, I met with clients. This worked, this didn't. Because I have so much relationship capital with a client, I can experiment a little more. I can experiment with a value add and they'll give me some benefit of the doubt. As the new guy, that's going to be harder for him. If a value add doesn't land, you know, like a comedian, if a joke doesn't land, that can be a problem if you don't have that capital. The, the other for me is as I'm doing the Perfect RA podcast, as we're doing this fintech offering, as I'm working with advisors, I, I'm really committed to only learning from advisors who are doing it. And I want to have that same authenticity when I'm teaching other advisors. So when I'm on the podcast saying, here's how you raise fees, I want it to be, excuse me, here's how I literally raised fees this last quarter, not here's how I think a fee increase should go. Here's what I think a client will say. So yeah, here's literally what happened in my practice. I'm typically working with advisors that are still sub a million dollars of revenue. And so for my own head trash, I can feel like I can really relate to you because I'm doing this in my practice. I'm doing surge meetings. I'm doing one-page financial plans. And it kind of gives it the, the credibility that these guys need to actually implement, right? It's one thing. And I, I read every book there was to read on financial planning. I couldn't actually implement until I met Tom Gow. And I'm like, oh, Tom, you actually do this in meetings. Here's word for word what you say. Okay, if you can do it, I can do it. Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, uh, there's always a power that comes from just literally hearing how exactly how other advisors do it. And and we usually, well, I mean, sometimes we try to entirely emulate what they're doing. Usually we don't completely copy and duplicate what everybody else is doing or what any one other advisor in particular is doing, just because we we have our own style, we have our own theme, we have our own way of doing things. You know, advisory firms tend to kind of get created in our our own mental image, but you know, as the saying goes, it's it's a lot easier to edit than it is to create. So 
it's a it's a lot easier to hear like, oh, well, here's what an advisor does that works. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to adapt that a little, but like, it's a lot easier to start with what they're doing than to actually try to create my own thing from scratch. Uh, it, it really is. I mean, if I look at the number of advisor websites out there now that, that mirror very closely mine on the, as far as the prospect process, it's awesome, right? They're like, hey, listen, this worked. I'm going to adapt this to my verbiage, to my language, to whatever, and I'm going to follow this process. Like the number of advisors I meet that are doing retirement income guardrails now, uh, it's phenomenal. I'm like, great. And they'll say, oh, I changed this and I changed that. Perfect. My way, again, was not the 11th commandment. It just works for me. You know, I, I adapted what Guyton had come up with in his white papers on dynamic distribution rates. Uh, it's like you said, it's easier to edit than it is to stare at a blank piece of paper and say, how am I going to deliver value? So, so talk to us now about sort of the, the, the rest of the Jarvis world that's grown and evolved since the, since the, the podcast, since you joined us on, on the advisor success podcast. So you've mentioned kind of a podcast, a coaching program, tech stuff you're, you're working on. So just share with us a little bit more, like what, what else is going on in in Jarvis world as as you're going through this this evolution of your business? Yeah. Well, one is that my oldest turns 16 next month. And so just from my personal world, like I'm getting kind of rocked to the core there, but that's that's its own thing. One of the phone calls I got after that episode seven was from Micah Shalansky, who I've mentioned a couple of times up in Alaska. And he says, hey, Jarvis, I think my practice is just like yours. In fact, I set a goal this year to meet another highly successful lifestyle advisor. We should meet up. And so we end up meeting up. We start doing masterminds. One night after a mastermind, he and I are drinking in a bar in Colorado at, at the at the Boulderado in Boulder, Colorado. And we think, you know what? We should start a podcast. This would be really fun. So in a bar, drunk, we start a podcast. The podcast team says, we cannot air that episode. It's so bad. We can't you mean like you literally pulled out a like a phone recorder and just started talking into it in the bar and said and you can like, hear like, the waitress coming like do you guys want more drinks We're like yes we want more drinks and they're like this is pure garbage you you can't air it but you're onto something so we start recording it in in seriousness we quickly get to ten thousand downloads a month which I know is a fraction of this podcast but for us that was a big deal we then launched the backstage pass uh, last year which was kind of a paid version of it we quickly got 200 advisors signed up into that. And then they said, hey, can you do a technology offering? Can you take your value ads and make them web-based so that we can use them instead of these hokey Excel documents you're using? And so we've got that. And then I've spent the last year writing a book, which will hit the shelves the same time this episode goes live, delivering massive value, the financial advisor's guide to kicking, we'll say, but because this is probably a family, family-friendly family podcast. So that's kind of been our big things. We've got five full-time people now. We launched retirement tax services with my brother, who's a CPA. That's a great podcast for advisors trying to provide tax value to clients. So we, we've been busy, a fraction of the Kitsis empire, but we've been busy. So so help us understand a little bit more just the the, the layers of, of how this works. So the uh, the podcast is out there. We'll, we'll have links out you, you, so people can find it. It's the perfect RIA podcast, but we'll, we'll, have, we'll have links out to it in the show notes as well for anybody that wants to, uh, to check it out. So podcasts, I'm presuming just it, it, it's free. You get it on iTunes because that's the podcast. Uh, way of things these days. So then you said sort of the next piece is, is there's a backstage pass. So what's what's backstage pass? Like what is that? How does that work? It's a paid version essentially of the podcast where it's it's kind of a quasi coaching program, quasi here's everything that's in Micah and I's office. You can take it and copy it and use it on your own. And so every quarter when we do a value add, every month we do a webinar for them. And then we did another offering we call Invictus, which includes our technology stacks out of our office and we're implementing or onboarding people in that right now. So it's really exciting. It's fun to just say like, hey, here's what I did in my practice. Like, here's what we mailed out last quarter to our clients. Take it, put your name on it, put your letterhead on it, adapt it to your voice, send it out to your clients. 
So the idea in essence of, of things like the backstage pass is just, hey, we're talking about things like the value ads we're offering. If you just literally want a copy of it in whatever you do, your Word or Excel document form, so you can literally try applying this in your own firm, that's what you get in the backstage pass. Just you can literally download those things and get access to them to to apply it for yourself. Yeah, and we have a forum and we have access to Micah and I and and we have monthly webinars and things like that. But but really our goal with with all of this is to help advisors double their practice success in in one of four areas. We think there's kind of like four areas where you can measure a practice of success. It's effectiveness, it's ability to prospect, the value to clients, and then profitability, EBOC earnings before owner's comp. So we're really looking and saying, all right, which of these four areas, one or more, can we help you double in the next 36 months? And that's kind of a bold a bold hurdle, but it's a fun one for us to tackle. And we've actually been really successful. We've we've helped dozens of advisors double these different areas of success in their practice because we can go in with credibility and say, hey, if you graduate these clients, if you increase your value, if you streamline this thing, if you implement surge meetings, this will quickly double the success of your practice. And so for those who are are interested in in kind of accessing and seeing some of the the tools and such more directly, like just what is this cost? What's involved? Like what is it was it take to do backstage pass or 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 sign up for the tech I guess templates for going even deeper on it? Oh boy, I should have written these numbers down. We only open it up for new members once a quarter. That way we can onboard people. It also keeps our team streamlined. I want to say right now the backstage pass is like uh, three hundred and fifty dollars a quarter, and Invictus is about twelve hundred. Excuse me, three hundred fifty dollars a month, and Invictus is like twelve hundred dollars a month. Something like that. I apologize. I should have that number written down. You can tell that I don't do the pricing. I uh, I provide the content. <laughs> all good. All good. And 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 the idea of these is is just it's backstage passes is sort of getting some of the templates. Invictus is it's actually now fully embodied into technology, so you can just more more fully automate this rather than just here's the template, but you still have to manually change it if you want to use it. That's right. And that's where advisors were struggling. They're saying, how do I make this Excel document work? The the macros in it are having problems. Now our team goes on, logs into their custodian with them, helps them download the data, gets it imported, gets it reconciled and cleaned up. And then they just hit the PDF button and out comes a report and they can email it to clients. They can print it, add their disclaimer, get it past their compliance department, things like that. And and primarily built around your sort of your quarterly value adds and the and the physical deliverables that you're that you're providing to people. Correct. That's kind of our, our main one, right? Guardrails, the beneficiary value add, the year-end 1099 letter, our tax strategy tools. And then we're rapidly, because Mike and I are doing this in our own practice, we're always rapidly adding more things in. And so, and then help us understand, like, where does the book fit into all of this? Yeah. So the book was actually a goal that I had set like 10 years ago. I'd always kind of wanted to write a book. I, I, I'm an uh, avid reader. I'm always reading three or four books at once. And I'd always kind of wanted to write a book. And then after your episode, our episode together, I started making a list of the most common questions or the most common lessons advisors were asking. And anytime an item or a lesson had more than a dozen advisors say, wow, I implemented this and it had a huge impact on my practice, that became a chapter in the book. And so we have chapters on raising fees and, and surge meetings and all of these things. And so you said the book is, well, I guess, coming out soon as of when we're recording this out recently by the time this goes live. So we'll, we'll have a link in the show notes for those who, who are interested in, in getting a copy of the, the book or, or knowing where to get a copy of the book. 
Yeah, it's on Amazon for, for Kindle, for Audible. I did my own Audible recording, which was a lot of work, but a lot of fun. And then, of course, as a physical copy, you can order those and they'll come out of my life. I guess they come out of my, my garage or something. I don't even know how the, how the shipping works on that. It's been a lot of fun. And then we put the first two chapters, chapter one, Know Who to Trust, and chapter two, Implementing Surge Meetings. We just put that on my personal website, matthewjarvis.com. And you can just go there and there's a button you can just click and read it. You don't have to download it or anything. It's just sitting right there for you. Okay. So we'll we'll have links for all that in the show notes as well. So again, this is episode 247. So if you go to so kitsis.com slash seven was the original one. Kitsis.com slash two forty-seven is is this episode. And so we'll have links out if you want to to check out the full book on Amazon or or to at least check out the the first few chapters directly from uh from Matthew and and uh and see what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I, th- I think it's been fun working with advisors. You know, I, I worked with a guy named Todd a month ago to Mastermind, and he had 300 clients, old legacy clients, old commission clients that needed to be graduated. And so he said, great, Todd, you've got to graduate all 300 of these clients, or here's your extreme accountability. And these kind of big changes, they make incredible impacts on people's practices, kind of going, saying, I'm going to be really intentional about everything in my practice, not just do it because that's how I've always done it, or I think that's how it's supposed to be done. Well, I, I think you made a powerful point around this from the from the start of the discussion that you know the the truth for most of this is that you particularly if you're at a certain level of experience. I mean, I think if you're getting started and completely new, there just there really is a lot that we're still learning. There comes a point where you've got a healthy base of experience, and most of what it takes to get to the next level is not not really actually nearly as much about. What do you do? That's the magic thing to do. It's just getting over your, as you put it so well, like getting over your own head trash that's keeping you from doing it because it's all we we get caught up in our own. I can't I can't change it because it, it it won't work because it's scary and it's different. And then people will get upset and then they'll fire me and then they'll tell their friends who will also fire me. And then everybody in town will know that I'm the advisor who gets fired, which means I should never be worked with. And then my business will collapse and my life will collapse and everything will uh, cascade into failure. It's like, you realize we were just talking about sending out a new deliverable. Yeah. Yeah. Or or, or going to surge meetings or whatever that is. Yeah. Somehow it escalates to the monster under the bed. And and that a lot of this really, to me, just comes down to, you know, I, I, I come from the psychology background as the as my undergrad so you know the the psych term is limiting beliefs i think head trash is a much better <laughs> much better label for it but just the, the you know sort of this recognition of uh, how much how much change could you achieve if you just weren't holding yourself back with all the negative self talk and and i think there's something very powerful around the the frameworks you've created for yourself around extreme accountability is just we got to have some way to get off of our status quo and over our limiting beliefs and our head trash. And so you've, you've found your way and it's, it's, you know, moving your business to some pretty amazing places. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, real action item, I always love ending my podcast with action items. Real, real action item would be for anybody listening. You've, you've got to find a mastermind that you can be part of, right? Create one yourself. It's not easy. Create one yourself. Find one you can be part of. All of these big changes we've talked about, Michael, in the last four years have all been a direct result of, of masterminds. And so I really just can't advocate strongly enough to form a mastermind. And then the other action item, of course, would be find a should in your life. Find somewhere where you're not being intentional, whether it's your fees or your schedule or how you're handling email, and get rid of that should and just say, here's what I need to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And to make sure I do it, understand that willpower is not enough. Here's what's going to kind of force me, my extreme accountability into that. So what surprised you the most about building your advisory business and and I'm thinking in particular over the over the past 4 years as you've gone through you know yet yet another doubling from this like million dollar threshold that was supposed to be the end point and 
and, and now it wasn't because you're because you're still going. What, what surprised you the most of building your business over the past couple of years? I think what surprised me the most is is coming off of the podcast with you four years ago, and then because I thought it would just be a fun story to share. Like I was totally honored to be on your your podcast. I think the episode before mine was Ron Carson, right? And he was doing these amazing things. And I thought, well, that was kind of cute. Like that was fun. I'm glad I got to do that. What surprised me the most was all of the advisors who said, wow, that really made a big impact in my practice. I want to duplicate what, what you're doing. Now, I guess that doesn't speak specifically to my practice. That's kind of life in general. The thing that surprised me the most over the last four years is just recently bringing on another advisor. For my entire career, I had thought the last thing I want to do is hire another advisor. The last thing I want is that headache. And I had all this head trash around that. And then when I really kind of penciled it out, when I fear set it out, when I actually did it, set the extreme accountability, it's it's been really transformative. It's what it let me write this book. It, what, it's what lets me grow the perfect RA is saying, hey, I'm going to get over my head trash on hiring somebody to bring in the right people and I'm going to make it happen. And, and we made it happen. So what was the... What was the head like? What was the head trash that was blocking you that got that that you got over? A lot of it was, hey, nobody can do it as good as I can do it. This advisor will come and they'll take all my clients, or they'll come and they'll create a compliance mess, or they won't be very good, or I won't be able to find a good one. Uh, working with a recruiter helped a lot on that because they did a lot of the screening and and made that process a lot easier. But and it was so really who did who did you use just who did you use for the recruiting process to get through it? Yeah, a gentleman by the name of Yosef Kolish. He does recruiting specific for financial advisors for RA firms primarily. He's in New York. We can get his contact information. He did a great job. It was interesting when I had my call with him. I talked to him and another recruiter, and he says, "Jarvis, what is your what's your quick start on your Kobe?" And I said, "Oh, it's a ten, maybe an eleven. I don't know." And he says, "Mine's a two. And he says, "What's your fact finder and your follow through?" I'm like, "Oh, those are both twos." And he says, "Mine are tens. That's why you need to work with me." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sales process. I respect that. Yeah. He said, you'll post an ad and you'll interview three or four people and then you'll get bored and you'll hire the fifth person just because you got tired of it. He says, I'll talk to dozens of people. I'll interview them each five or six times before you even talk to them. Oh, I like this idea. Okay. And so, and so was there anything in particular that just, I don't know, that, that, that got you past the the head trash you were stuck on because just I mean you had a you had a whole bunch of very very good very different fears in there right like they won't do it as good as I can they won't be good or maybe they'll be good but I won't be able to find the good people or they'll be so good that they'll take my clients like great so if they're bad I lose and if they're good I lose like you pretty much hedged all possibilities as a That's losing right, proposition yeah. <laughs> so That's how I, head trash works by the way it always seems like perfectly like your logic is unfailable mm-hmm. yeah no matter which path you go it's definitely going to fail so. <laughs> So just like what what changed what shifted how did you how did you get past that point Ultimately what shifted was saying all right where where do I want my life and my practice to be 5 years from now do I want it to be the same as what it is right now where I'm doing the same surge meetings maybe I'm inching up profitability but do I want it to be materially the same or do I want it to be very different do I want to have time to work with other advisors to write a book to do more travel with my family okay I want this other outcome I want to have time to write a book perfect the way to get there is by hiring an advisor. So I was able to connect, like this is what's standing in the way from where I am to where I really want to be. And then I worked on extreme accountability to say, all right, I, my courage isn't enough. Like that vision's not enough. I need some extreme accountability to make sure it happens. But I, I think that's the same for fee increases. It's the same for graduating clients. Where is it I ultimately want to be? How much time do I ultimately want to spend with my family? What's standing in my way? Oh, not doing surge meetings is standing in my way. All right, I better implement surge meetings. So what does a typical week look like for you at this point? 
Well, we're recording this in the middle of the summer. So a typical week looks like mountain biking, CrossFit, and dirt biking. And then I spend my Mondays working on the perfect RA. And then I have a once a week check-in with my team that lasts about an hour to two hours, depending on how many things they have. And just that framing, that's because you run a surge meeting approach. It is summer. Your surge meetings are not in the summer. So you're between surge meetings. And that's the whole point is like, when you build a surge process, the the load between surge meetings gets gets a lot lighter. Correct. So I was kind of already doing that before we hired Alex. And then we each month, we schedule it, what I call a mini surge. So I could take two days, a Wednesday and a Thursday. Because what inevitably happens is we do a surge, like we do a surge meeting in April. And as soon as surge gets done, a client calls and says, oh, I need to see Matthew. And if we say, hey, we, you can't see him again until October, that doesn't always go over well. So then we can say, hey, listen, he's got two days available each month and you can get on one of those days via Zoom because he's probably traveling. And and just what if they don't even want to wait until the next month? Like, no, 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 this is urgent. Like, I got stuff going on in my life. I need to talk to Matthew. It, it would have to be legitimately urgent. And so my team has a, a process they go through. Because clients call in, hey, I need to talk to Matthew. You know what? Matthew's helping another client right now. Is there something I can help you with? Now, inevitably, they say, no, I have to talk to Matthew. Perfect. So that Matthew can be prepared for the call, what can I tell him it's regarding? And they'll say, well, I need to change the address on my account. Oh, great news. I can take care of that. So that screens a lot of it. If they said, hey, my spouse just died and I'm really freaked out and I don't know what to do, then my team will get a hold of me and I'll take a call that day or the next day. But that that only happens, Michael, maybe once a year. All the other ones, we just say, hey, listen, here's when we do client meetings. Uh, just like if I call my doctor and I say, can I see you on a Saturday afternoon because I forgot to schedule a meeting? No, no, you can't. <laughs> well, I think that's a great example, right? The The I think the head trash for a lot of us is like, I have to be always immediately available for my clients because that's my value and, you know, a good service and high touch and like all those other things that we do to explain our fees and our, and our value proposition. And it gets to the point of like, well, I know, I mean, if I don't, if I don't take that client's meeting, you know, immediately or tomorrow or in the next week, they're going to fire me. And, and as you're noting, like, no, no, almost always, they're almost, almost always they're fine if the meeting's in a few weeks or even a few months, particularly if you've set those expectations in the first place. Because as as noted, like unless it's a real serious emergency, when you call your doctor and say, I really like to see the doctor, like, cool, we'll schedule you in three weeks. Yeah, or three months. I don't know which doctors we'll see in three weeks, but yeah. Uh, and it goes fine. And like we we still see our doctors and we're not firing them left and right. Yeah, you definitely have to manage that expectation with clients. You you can't abruptly go into surge and just say, "Hey, I want to do surge meetings so I can take more time off." Like that that's not going to go over well with the client, right? We're going to say, "Hey, so that we can serve you better, we want to meet together in April during tax season, we want to meet together in the fall, and of course, if something urgent comes up between then, we'll meet, but otherwise we're going to focus our meetings then so that our team can take the other time to do all the work we do behind the scenes to deliver value to your family." So we're positioning it why it's in their best interest. Now, it's also in my best interest, but you know, we got to position it accordingly. So What's been the low point for you on this stage of the journey? I think the low point has been when everything got going with with the perfect RAA and with the book and everything else. For a minute, I let go of my focus on how much time I wanted to take off and how I wanted to run my life because it's easy to let life fill in with this, that, and everything else. And so I was starting to get these calls from advisors and from our employees at the perfect RAA and from my team. And suddenly I found myself in this really frantic, reactive mode. And it took another mastermind to say, wait a second, I'm not being intentional with my time. I'm letting my world become a reactive world. And then I was able to step back and say, great, all right, here is when in my calendar the perfect RA lives. Here's when Jarvis Financial lives. Here's when I CrossFit. Here's when I dirt bike. Here's when I mountain bike so that I'm being intentional. And, and Michael, you probably know this a hundred times more than I do because you have so much going on. You, you have to really be intentional about your time or you'll just be consumed and be totally reactive all the time. So I think that was really the low point 
and it took me a while to recognize it. There was several tense weeks and months where I, I wasn't in my, on my top game because I was in such a reactive mode. And I just didn't notice that that was what was causing that low point. So is there anything else now, uh, like what you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from four or five years ago? Yeah, uh, me four or five years ago wouldn't believe anything that me is telling you today. Like if I went the, the day before our podcast, if I said, guess what? You're going to meet this guy, Micah Shalansky, and you're going to start this company and it's going to turn into this big thing and advisors all over the world are going to call you asking for advice. Like I just, I just flat wouldn't, wouldn't have believed that. Short of that, it would be, you know, be very intentional, fear set. Any, anywhere you have a should, I guess that would be it. Anywhere there's a should in your life. I should raise fees. I should spend more time with my family. I should be out of my email. Anywhere there's a should, some kind of action needs to be taken there. Get out of the should world, get out of the victim world, read Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership, and, and look at those shoulds and just get rid of them. Either say, hey, I'm just not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to spend time with my family, and I guess I'm okay with that, or I am going to, and here's what that means, and here's how I'm going to get there. So, what advice would you give to newer advisors getting started in the industry today? Yeah, my number one would be figure out how to deliver massive value. That, that really solves so many problems in prospecting, in client relationships and everything else. If you can say, who, who in the industry, right? Who in the industry do I respect what they're doing? Do, does their approach, their philosophy resonate with me? And how do I sort of mirror what they're doing, right? So if you're saying, and, and Michael, you've done, or Michael, you've done this with a great job with XYP, well, I'm getting tripped up, XYPN. You've brought together a community of people who say, hey, this is how we think the industry should be served. And then new advisors can go to that and say, great, I want to serve people the same way. Now I have a community. I have people I can ask and say, hey, when somebody comes in with student loan debt, what do you do? And so for new advisors, I'd say, find that role model, that person who has the practice you want and do everything you can to essentially copy what they're doing. And that's okay. And that's okay right? Because I, I think there's a, uh, you know, we, we learn in school, you're not supposed to copy from others. You're always supposed to do your own original work. So I think there's a, because there's an interesting reflection there. Like, it's a, it's okay that you're trying to replicate from what someone else is doing. Because because the truth is, we all still run our own advisory firms our own way with our own style, our own conversations. Like, no matter how hard you actually try to replicate someone else's practice, you're you're going to do it differently in your own style. So it's okay. You're gonna you're gonna do it differently in your own style. Yeah, I kind of have two thoughts on there. One, Seth Godin, G-O-D-I-N, he's a, one of the most brilliant marketers currently alive. He talked about in a podcast that there hasn't been anything new in marketing since Jay Abraham was selling pots and pans door to door. He says, nothing new has happened since then. It's all been just repurposed what Jay Abraham learned. Same for you and I. Like We're just doing what everybody else has done. We might've found a new variation on that. So no, nobody really has an original thought. They're just implementing it a different way. I, I would, however, add one caution. I have seen advisors get in a lot of trouble for just blatantly plagiarizing other people's stuff. So if you, you, know, if you go to kitsis.com and copy and paste an article and put it on your website, that's plagiarism, that's copyright infringement. That's going to get you in a lot of trouble. If you say, wow, I really like how kitsis.com is laid out and I'm going to lay out a site similar to that. Okay, that's a whole different thing. It's like... Yeah. You can copy up other people's systems and processes. Be careful about literally copying their words, or at least there's an additional layer of permission you have to do so you don't get into copyright issues for, for literally taking their words, but but co copy their systems. Yeah, yeah. Find, find what works, right? This is so, so we have kind of these four rules of success, right? And uh, uh, rule number one is deliver massive value. Rule number two is be intentional. And then rule number three is do what works, right? Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Find somebody who's doing what it is you want to do and as much as possible model that and of course, rule number four is that willpower is not enough, which is where extreme accountability comes in. So as we wrap up, this, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes is always that the word success means different things to different people. So you're, you're on this wonderful journey for success. You, you, you joined us 
four years ago for an incredible success journey and, and then more than doubled it. So I like clearly the business is, is going well, but h- how do you define success for yourself at this point? At, at a high level, I, I define it on how much of my time and energy is, is spent intentionally, right? How much of it is saying, this is what I want to do today, this week, this month, this year versus how much is reactive, right? So if, if I'm checking emails because I just think I need to check emails, that's not being intentional. If I'm working because it feels like working, but if I'm saying, hey, listen, I'm going to spend this week really focused on this, or I'm going to spend this month, I'm going to spend this month going on driver's ed drives with my daughter every single day. Like I'm being intentional about on that. That's how I define success. Right now, professionally, I, I really get a lot of success validation out of all these texts and emails I get from advisors. I got one from a, an advisor friend, Ben, recently. He said, Jarvis, when I first heard your podcast, I made $100,000 take-home income that year. And he says, this calendar quarter, he sent me a copy of the check. I made $100,000 this calendar quarter. So I've 4X'd my practice in the last four years. Forex now, Forex is take-home. Like Forex, Forex is take-home. That's the check he took out. And by the way, he spends, he's in what he calls the 79ers club, which is advisors that take more than 79 work days off, which means you spend half the year out of the office, including weekends and half the year in. And now this advisor deserves all of the credit, right? He did all of the really hard work, surge meetings, one-page financial plans, guardrails. What, what I take a lot of success in is to say, wow, I was able to kind of point and say, hey, try going this direction. Right. So he deserves all the credit, but that success to hear like, hey, this path also worked for me because Michael, like in your early days, my early days were really dark. Like it was really painful and really hard. Pretty much sucks for everybody in the early years. Yep. It destroys you. So to see that happen, to see Ben say, wow, following your path really helped me. It sort of like gives me some validation. Like the price I paid was worth it. Like the price is, is I'm getting more from that investment than I thought I could. I I love it. And I, I really appreciate you coming back just to share the the next stage of the journey how it's continuing to evolve uh you know congratulations again on the the, the success through this next stage and just excited for you with the with the book with the with the podcast with the platform that you're building and you will have links out for all of it for anyone who wants to go uh check it out i, I got to read an advanced copy of the book it's a very cool book with lots of lots of just good practical ideas so i hope everyone goes and checks it out and Thank you again, Matthew, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast again. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.